before we get started, I wanted to ask you a question, Kurt. Okay, go ahead, Tim. So George Floyd was killed right here in the city that we live in at 38th in Chicago on May 25th, not quite three months ago from the date that we're recording today. And I wanted to ask in your view, have things changed? Is our world any different today than it was before May 25th? You know, I think in some aspects, the world has drastically changed. Uh, But then in many aspects, the world is exactly the same as it was before. I think the issues that George Floyd's killing brought up are large, they're systemic. They are have, have lasted uh, the test of time and to expect that things are going to change overnight or because of one thing. It, it is, I think, to a certain degree though, the straw that broke the camel's back. It has been piling up for so long, so, so much that this was just that piece. And I think there's a different feel and I hope that there's a different um, outcome based upon that different feel. But we do see some things, right? We see uh, the city council uh, in, in Minneapolis here really looking at this and actually going pretty far in kind of stating we're going to disband the police. Um, now that hasn't happened, and there's lots of political ramifications moving forward with that. But there are, you know, there's a, a memorial that's probably going to be permanent going on at 38th in Chicago. Um, there's peaceful protests that are happening all of the time every Sunday um, within the town. There's, there's, you know, uh, protests going around the the country and around the world still to this day. Uh, so, so I think there's that. What about you? Well, I feel like the media has kind of moved on. Like, the, like we're not really getting the headlines about about change as much as we're still getting reminded occasionally. George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis on May 25th. We hear that, but we don't really hear about what's changing in the world. And and I'm I'm concerned that uh, in the world of what gets measured gets done, that we're not measuring it. You know, mm-hmm. that we're really not not really paying enough attention, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about this, though, um, it may not be in the media, but things are happening, right? Um, just want to add, there have been peaceful protests in 2,000 cities in the United States and hundreds of peaceful protests outside the United States since George Floyd's murder. murder. And his death sparked a movement that is truly global. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And yet I'm concerned that this global movement may not be having a big enough effect on our policies or our social norms. I'm not sure that the behaviors that I see in the world are really reflecting a meaningful increase in the general concern for human rights. Our, our guest today would probably agree with you. And this might be a good time to tell the listeners who we are. Okay. I'm Kurt Nelson, co-founder of Behavioral Grooves. And I'm Tim Houlihan. And with Kurt, we publish Behavioral Grooves to share insights about behavioral science by delving into why we do what we do. And today's episode has a very social justice angle to that discussion. It sure does, Tim. In this episode, we spoke with Nicole Fisher, who is the president of Health and Human Rights Strategies and is a regular contributor to Forbes magazine on social justice issues. And that's how we found her. We read her piece in Forbes about the psychology of protests, and we realized that we had to talk to her. 
Now, thankfully, she was kind enough to speak with us, and we found Nicole to be a fascinating person. She earned her master's in public health from the University of Chicago and her PhD in public health from Chapel Hill, and she was even an economics fellow at George Mason University. She's not an exactly uh, underachiever. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And on top of that, she's been committed to social justice and human rights with a special emphasis on mental and physical health for more than a decade. Our conversation with Nicole covered a wide range of topics, but we thought she had some interesting ideas about how Americans are processing the pandemic, like how it mirrors the stages of grief and the way we filter and process communication based on our beliefs. She also shared a cool idea about peer permission as a new spin on peer pressure. She's also working with Chris Graves from Ogilvy on a project called No COVID, and we're just excited to hear what sorts of things come out of that group. Right which has some, again, hopeful aspects as we're looking forward to the change of things that are coming out of all of these controversies that we're doing. It was a terrific conversation and I'm glad we had the chance to speak with her. Now it's time to sit back and relax with a fresh take on public health and social justice and listen to our conversation with Nicole Fisher. Nicole Fisher, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's good to have you I'm here. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, glad. Great. We're excited to have you here. Uh, let's start with a little speed round. Um, Kurt, you want to get started? Sure. Uh, would you rather learn a new instrument or a new language? Language. Okay. I love languages. Yeah. Okay. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite sports star or favorite musician? Musician. Hmm. Tim call. likes you a lot more right now. There you go. I just have to, have to say that. All right. <laughs> Which would you prefer to watch? A cowboy western movie or a samurai movie? You knew we were going to come samurai here. Mo- I know. <laughs> samurai movie. They're like westerns with swords. <laughs> <laughs> westerns with swords. I love it. Uh, okay, so a uh, last speed round question. In this time of social unrest, do you think that we're better off focusing on peer pressure or peer permission right now? Oof. Uh, I'm going to say permission. And uh, I think my rationale for that is my own bias. Of the last few days, I've been obsessively working with how to communicate with people um, who are just not behaving the way we want them to right now. <laughs> and uh, you know, I've, I've been really digging into, I even tweeted, I think yesterday, you know, something like you can't shame people into <laughs> agreeing with you. And so the last couple of days, I think I've just really come to this place where I'm obsessing over how do you garner buy-in, use honey, right? So I think I'm going to, you know, I think right now I'm going to lean towards permission. We're in a permission phase. Yeah, so this idea came from Gene Denby and Shireen Miraji, right from Code Switch. And uh, that, that was the first time that I'd heard this idea of peer permission being used. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, about your understanding of what the concept is? Certainly. It was new to me as well. Uh, I was actually doing a, a podcast um, with NPR on Code Switch, as you mentioned. And what, how this originally came to be is they had posed a question about why now white people? 
That's why, you know, so much is going on in the world and people seem to care about issues that have been pervasive throughout American history. And yet all of a sudden now they're showing up and caring in new ways. And as we were having this conversation about people's behavior, uh, they noticed a really interesting dichotomy that you just alluded to, which was there's peer pressure to be engaged in these social justice issues. But there's also this other dynamic of peer permission. And a lot of people were responding to them and saying they never felt like it was quite their place to say certain things or stand up for certain issues or, you know, be vocal. And um, it wasn't so much peer pressure. Uh, it was permission. They finally felt like they could say whatever they wanted and, and be heard. Yeah, that's interesting. You talked at the at the beginning about using honey as opposed to shaming. So uh, how do people go about doing that? How, how do we, if we are in conversations with, with those folks who we are trying to influence to make our world a better place, whether that be around potentially wearing a mask, whether it's about social justice, whether it's about a variety of other things, what are some of the things, so as you're thinking about this, right, you, you said you've talked or thought about this, using honey versus shame how, how do how do we do that well i think a lot of what this comes down to is uh, respect and understanding and unfortunately we are in one of those phases in time particularly as americans where i think there's not nearly enough grace given to people and everything is escalated, everything is divisive, everything seems to be an either or at this point. And I, I think uh, people have drawn their lines, they've planted their flags, they've gone to their respective corners, and we've come to a stalemate on a lot of issues and people are just unwilling to negotiate. And when it comes to something like wearing a mask, it, it just absolutely frustrates and baffles those of us who work in, in public health because it shouldn't be a political issue at all. It should just be a collective good issue. At the same time, there are people saying, you know, it's a slippery slope. It's, this can be mandated. What's next? And, and I think there needs to be, like I said, more understanding, um, saying, I understand why you feel this way, um, presenting data that can be trusted, um, you know, saying, I hear you, I understand why you feel this way, how do we come to some sort of compromise? Is it that you only do it in these, you know, instances, but when you're in these other instances, I mean, in New York, we saw a lot of like, you know, kids in parks mm -hmm. were being thrown out. And it angered a lot of people because then the next thing we know, we see people out in the streets and that's okay. And that's sort of what a lot of people saw as mixed messaging created a lot of anger Whereas I think there's plenty of opportunity to say, well, you know, now we, we've learned kids can be in parks. Outdoor spaces are actually quite safe. How far apart with masks? You know, I, I think there just really needs to be open and honest discussions between people as opposed to if you don't do this, you're killing someone. You're a bad person. You, you put those definitive, awful, you're a bad person sort of things out. And, and you're going to get met with hostility and resistance every time. Yeah. Well, I'm, you, 
you have a great view of global issues. I mean, your PhD is in global public health. You spend a lot of time looking outside the U.S. Do you think some of these, uh, this tribalism, uh, this sort of digging in is different in other countries? Uh, because the pandemic is everywhere. You know, we, we, it's, it's not like it's just mm-hmm. the U.S. So other countries are suffering too. Do you, do you think it's different? It is different. It, it's different in the same. Um, so as you said, my, I have a doctorate in public health. Uh, humans are inherently the same. What we're all going through has many similarities. How we are addressing it is very different. And there are a number of things I think at play. First and foremost, you know, we're in an election year. We're a few months away. Lord help us all. Uh, Everything right now, the word I used to is escalated, right? Like everything is going to get escalated. And that's a unique factor. We're also very American. And <laughs> you can ask anyone else in the world, and when they describe Americans, they describe us very differently because we inherently are different. Uh, we view freedom differently. The other big factor I think that's at play, and this is something I've seen across many different countries, um, is different responses have been based on a number of factors, but trust in science, Mm. trust in the experts, trust in medicine, in the institutions. And a lot of places where you see a lack of trust in authority, which I'd argue very much what's happening here right now, uh, there's much greater, um, distance between uh, what people are willing to do and believe and what's being printed in the media. It's just, it's night and day countries that uh, seem to have a lot of faith in their leaders and, or a lot of trust in researchers and scientists. Um, We've also seen countries, I would argue that put public health leaders out front at the very beginning and, and they had, have had consistent messages since February or March, they've done the best. Uh, those that have gone back and forth um, have struggled. Now that said, you know, most people don't ever have to watch science happen in real time. Mm. And it is very difficult. It is so difficult. And, uh, you know, something that I will say is not uniquely American, but has really been brought, you know, right in front of our faces is this concept of fake news. And people are in a place where they're ingrained right now to think if it doesn't align with what they believe or it belongs to a certain person or party, it's fake news. And with science, you know, the more information you have, the more inputs you have, the better the output is going to be. And the more information you put in, the answer should change. In fact, if it doesn't, I would argue you've done something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so when we say one thing, but then someone says, hey, we've run two more randomized you know, clinical trials. We're now finding this. Best practices should evolve. They should change. We should grow and learn. And um, the, the fake news sort of mentality being applied to science right now I'm not seeing that in other places quite like I am in the U.S. It's interesting. You talk about this trust in science, and I love the idea of 
watching science in real time because I think that is a key component of this for, for people who don't fully grasp how science works. This idea that uh, you have X amount of information and you're going out to find more information and that may change your understanding based upon the new information that comes in, which may change the recommendations that, that are being brought out. And that's how science works. That's how it's supposed to work, as you said. And, and we get people, and, and you talk about this confirmation bias, right? That, that if it doesn't align with my pre-held beliefs, then it becomes fake news. And, and if I can grab onto this little piece of nugget, well, you said masks were bad at the beginning. Uh, you, you, that, you said that. And so now you're changing this. So now this is fake news. So I think there's a lot of human dynamics that are coming into play on this. And I think you've outlined this. This idea of people watching science happening in real time is just a new phenomena for many people. And I think it, we need to do a better job at explaining and, and communicating that. And I just don't know how to do that. Well, and that's one reason I think you're exactly right. Um, and that's one reason I had said a, a moment ago, I think and again, there are so many dynamics at play. It's impossible to say, here's the one thing that made the difference in this country or that country. But on trend, um, the countries that put the public health experts out front, uh, I think have done the best. And I think part of that is because Again, the, the communication has been consistent, even if the recommendations change. But further, I would argue it's more common, perhaps, I'm not sure what the right word is here, but for people in say, public health or in science to be a lot more honest and say, I don't know. Mm. And the amount of trust that is built when someone is authentic and they say, we don't know, this is a new virus. We don't know. We're all in, you know, we're learning together. Whereas politicians, you know, they sort of, their entire career is built on saying, I know I can do this and this and this, and here's what's going to happen. You cannot do that in this situation and be honest. You're going to have to walk something back. You're going to have to change your recommendations. And so, you know, countries that have come out strong with political opinions, I would argue have greatly eroded the public's trust. Yeah. I think the language that, that scientists and, and health professionals use just in general, maybe even not saying, I don't know, but the data suggests the, the, this, this never really black and white. There's always, there's typically a gradient of gray somewhere in, in the speech yeah. and the, the, the language that we use. That's a great point. And I tend to, even in my reading, uh, if an article, even in you know, mainstream you know, media, if an article says suggest, that's a great word that you used, or may indicate, mm -hmm. I inherently trust that article, that author, that you know, study more than these headlines that are so-and-so rips apart. This <laughs> proves that you know, all this, <laughs> the language that's so often used right now, because it's clickbait material, right? I mean, yeah. it's those strong, evoke so much emotion, words are, are just being thrown around left and right. And when you read that, you know, as someone who participates in science and, and public health, when you see that, you just, I don't know, at least for me, I immediately think, okay, well, this can't be true. And or they have exaggerated to the point that, eh, all right, maybe, 
a piece of this is true, but the rest of it's just fluff. But in general, it does. Our human brains are much happier with with the the polar opposites. It's either yes or no. It's okay. either black or white. It's much easier to deal with. It's it is this way or it is not this way. Not most of the time it's this way or we're not really sure that it's this way or the evidence suggests it's this way that's more difficult it takes more cognitive you know horsepower to process that of course yeah that's i think that's exactly right it's it's easy to say yes or no it's easy to well earlier you you know talked about confirmation by it, it's easy to believe things that already tell us what we know it's really hard <laughs> to to say well it can be both or it depends, right? Then you add all these dynamics in that just, they make us tired. They use energy. <laughs> well, and, and, and in a time when we're already emotionally drained with all the other stresses that are going on with the economic potential, the health potential, all of those factors, it's one more thing on top of it. And so I think people gravitate to those, yes, black, white, kind of answers and say, yeah, all right, I, this, is, this is one thing I don't have to actually think about because this messenger who I believe uh, says it is so or the messenger I don't believe says it is so obviously it's not, so therefore I'll believe the opposite, um, various different pieces mm -hmm. of that. <laughs> so Yeah, and I think what you pointed out is, is so important that, and again, this gets back to sort of uh, earlier we were talking about pressure versus permission and um, shaming versus trying with honey people are exhausted people are emotionally mentally physically tapped out right now and to be honest at least here in the united states between now and november it's not going to change in fact i think it's it's going to get worse and therefore when we communicate with people when we talk to them you have to just immediately understand they're, they're taxed. They're, they're at the end. They're tapped out. They have a million frustrations, concerns, worries, you know, and just like, you know, earlier we were saying the easy decisions, the black, white, yes, no, good, bad. Everyone, for the most part, is currently living in a situation where it's not work, home, it's not school, daycare, it's everything is sort of in this ebb and flow and making it up every day. Monday looks like Thursday, looks like Saturday. <laughs> We're in a really confusing place. People are just being pushed to their limits. And, and truthfully, we just don't do well when that's a pervasive state of being. Right. I'd like to go back to uh, the reason that we met is because you wrote a terrific piece in Forbes on the psychology of protests. And that really, it, it caught Kurtz and my attention. And we were wondering if we could talk a little bit about that. Um, and maybe you could just do a quick summary uh, for our listeners uh, for sort of the thesis of the piece, if, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. That was way back in March. So <laughs> even I have to well, that was like think. Well, what, right? What was March? Did we, when was March? Yeah. Um, Basically, at that time, I was very curious. I had assumed, I guess we'll start, um, I'll be efficient, but, you know, sort of ground you in, in the concept of, I assumed much like the stages of grieving. You know, we all go through these stages, there are different times, but 
we, we sort of know the, the progression of how we, you know, learn to grapple with these losses. I made the assumption that pandemics, because they're as old as mankind, there would be something similar. Like here are the stages of pandemic. Here's what people go through. And that body of literature really doesn't exist. And so I started digging into the history of pandemics and what happens particularly when people are locked down. You can look to prison literature, you can look to juvenile justice literature, and we see psychologically patterns that arise when people have freedoms taken away. And so I just started, you know, looking at all these parallels starting, I think about the 1400s, kind of where I drew the line, but to present. And it is remarkably similar uh, what happens when we lock people in. A couple months in, when there's uncertainty, when there's lack of, again, earlier I said trust and authority, people start to share grievances. They start to share their fears. And those become amplified. They become more intense. Um, shared geography is a big piece of it. People are, you know, who live near each other often have very similar sort of situations, backgrounds, um, troubles. And what happens? Well, usually there's an injustice that takes place. It could be um, that a political figure is removed from the quarantine zone. It could be a video of someone being killed. It, you know, it could be a million different things, but it takes an injustice that really unites people. And it's like a tinderbox. It just blows up and people get angry and then they protest and they riot. And it's a pattern that just keeps playing out um, when pandemics arise. Yeah. In your article, you also talk about this lack of trust in government or authority, again, coming back to some of the other things that we've talked about. Um, so again, you, you, the, the perfect uh, storm basically was brewing before the George mm -hmm. Floyd incident, instance happened. Um, are you surprised mm -hmm. at the at how long that this has been going on, because obviously that was back right around Memorial Day, and yet there are still protests going on. You look at, at Portland that's going on right now, a variety of other things mm -hmm. that, are, that are still playing out. Are you surprised at the longevity of this? I am. Uh, I'm also surprised by the growth. Uh, what I mean by that is this is not confined to a geographic area, uh, you know, we're saying like New York got locked down, New York goes crazy, or this incident happened in Minnesota, Minnesota's an anomaly. We're seeing protests literally all over the world. And so not only, you know, how long they've been going on, but how they've, I mean, inspired protests all over the world for injustices, mostly race-based. Um, I think there's a couple interesting components at play there that make this different, maybe too strong of a word, but I mean, we live in a, you know, a technologically advanced time when in the 1400s they couldn't tweet and share all over the world. But I think that the couple things that are, you know, you're sort of unique here are one, that ability to share information. I mean, a video can go viral in seconds. And secondarily, a key component to riots is anonymity. Mm. 
And it's one reason people don't want to take to the streets. If you can see their face, you know who they are, it can reflect on their employer, their family, all kinds of things can be tied to people seeing you misbehave. Um, We are in this place where we're practically told to be anonymous. The police show up with riot gear, full masks, and civilians are told to wear masks, stay covered. And so I think particularly at night when the sun sets, um, it, it just becomes this perfect, as you said, it's a perfect storm. And then you add in the shared information and the ability to join a, a mass crowd and, and amplify the voices, amplify the anger, the intensity, but still remain anonymous. That's a pretty unique circumstance. And possibly even slightly dehumanized uh, with the, the amount of gear that the, the police are wearing, uh, the riot gear uh, almost puts them into sort of a RoboCop like look. You know, they some some of them almost look like they're 22nd century kind of, you know, super characters uh, and and less like people. And that could have a dehumanizing effect both on for them as being under all this armor, as well as for the people who they're, they're looking at, um, don't perceive them as people. And consequently, they're looking at the masks, the, the hordes of masked people like, well, they're not real people because I'm not really seeing their faces. Is, is that part of it too, do you think? I would say for me, the, um, you know, it's anecdotal, but visually, one thing that will stand out to me for the rest of my life uh, is not only the riot gear, but that military-type presence living in downtown D.C. to you know, have a good 48-hour window plus where the streets are lined with that robo-cop-type-looking you know, figure, all black, riot gear, plus military presence, police presence, the Humvees. The, it, it was a surreal feeling. I couldn't believe I was in an American city in, in 2020. And so, you know, when people are out in the streets and they're already angry, I have no doubt that that just visual presence alone completely changes the psychological aspect of, of what's happening and the gravity of it. Yeah. It's really interesting. You do a lot of work in, in just your regular day about um, health issues. And, and, and in our conversation, we, we talked with you a little bit before this. Uh, you, you, you mentioned that social uh, justice can be seen through a, through a health lens as well. Can you talk a little bit about that um, and just why, why that might be something that is not only just a social justice, but there's, there's some health component um, uh, elements to that? I would actually take a step even further back than that and say the way I view the world is health is everything. Mm. It is ev- every single thing about you, um, starting from childhood development, everything you see, hear, touch, smell, when I mean, your, your brain is changing in real time based on every experience, all the way through a adulthood, um, you know, where you live matters. The people you interact with every day matters. The job you have, how you feel about it. I mean, public transportation is a public health issue. Whether someone takes 
you know, they walk a mile to work, they sit in a car for two hours, they ride public transport. I mean, it, those kinds of things very much affect your mental health, your emotions, obviously your physical health. Um, and so, you know, we, the work I do, most often I would say we work in things like education, nutrition, water, some of those basic sort of human right access issues. But at the end of the day, um, I have no problem advocating for grocery stores in neighborhoods that don't have them. Uh, the exact same way I would advocate for, you know, changes to, to public transportation. I mean, there are moms who have to take three buses to get to a hospital. And if you have a sick child, I mean, that's, that could be the difference between life and death. And then when they say, hey, come back tomorrow, can you come back in a couple of days? That's three buses there, multiple hours, three buses home, multiple hours. She likely had to take off of work. Is she going to be able to do that again tomorrow or the next day? And so those are, you know, at their core, a lot of social justice issues, how people are treated, where they live, what they have access to. And uh, they're all health. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting part where you start thinking about this in a through a lens that, that really highlights how important all of those aspects are, not just to the economic viability, to everything else, but it, it parlays into how, how we are as how healthy we are uh, over and above just those other inconveniences or the other aspects that, that it's dealing with. So really insightful. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you're working on a task force with one of our um, favorite Ogilvy employees, Chris Graves. <laughs> everybody, everybody, everybody who knows Ogilvy knows Rory, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But but Chris Graves um, is, uh, is really a great leader within the organization when it comes to behavioral science. And you're doing some work with him. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So it's a fantastic group of humans. I am baffled. They asked me to participate. Uh, it's called No COVID, and it's a very, very dynamic group of humans from you know all different kinds of backgrounds. We have John Barry, and we've got some incredible public health people, um, incredible data people, and as you said, um, you know Chris Graves and a couple of other people from Ogilvy. And you know, some of the things we're trying to do are communicate with those who perhaps you know, haven't um, come along <laughs> in the process of you know, getting on board with the precautions for you know, preventing spread of the virus. Um, it could be, you know, we're not taking on issues like whether schools should reopen or not. For us, it's really about meeting people where they are particularly in the most vulnerable counties, and then trying to communicate with them about the state of the real world, what they can do, what's in their control. And then of course, those dictate, you know, what, when we can sort of get back to, to norm, but it's been a really fun experience. I think for me, one of the greatest lessons learned is that in so many communities, you can have your big celebrity um, Chris Rock, John Stamos, there are a couple of the names, who, people who um, come on to, you know, make a Twitter or YouTube video saying, hey, you know, wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. And they have an influence. People like them, they love them, they listen to them. And yet, 
it's really those local community people that they trust. And so it's been really fascinating to see that in you know some particular county, it could be the, the local high school basketball coach. Mm-hmm. It could be the used car salesman. It's the voice that they've heard, the face that they've seen, the person that they trust. And that is often the best communicator. Um, you know, and we've also, I think, done a really good job about finding some of the surprise communicators, people who have changed their tune. Mm. Um, and, and that often can garner a lot of buy-in because then people see someone change their mind. That's okay. Like, why did they change their mind? Is it because they have a family member who contracted the virus? Is it because, you know, what, what is that experience? Uh, and so we're doing our best to really find the best voices and advocates in, in science and in public health and communications and build the team. Yeah. It reminds me a, a couple things. One is Christina Bicchieri, who we interviewed, who does uh, fantastic research on social norms. And she talks about mm-hmm. the, the influence. She goes, we think about social norms as these big, large global norm things. And she said, really, they're, these, they're reflective of the reference that we have. And that reference group is yeah. much smaller. And so it is that person who is that local basketball coach, the, 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 the neighbor across the street, the, those people that are in our community that we hold as they're like us, they're part of our you know, circle. And those are the people that we look to, to, to see what are the social norms that are acceptable and how we, we, we process them. So that, that makes sense. And th- this other part, mm-hmm. um, that you talked about, and now I just blew where I was going to go with the second part, number two. So, <laughs> I was loving the first part. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, me too. So I'm, uh, I think, and I think you're 100 percent right. Yeah, I, I think the the other key piece of this, though, is thinking through when we are communicating. Right? You talked about this trust aspect, and and how that is so vital. Is, is what are the, how are we communicating to, to build that trust, right? What are the things that we are doing that enable the trust? And, and this is the, the second part where I, I was going to. Uh, you talked about those people who had changed their tunes. And we heard uh, Robert Cialdini talk about this at a conference where he said, you know, one of the best ways to influence somebody is to say, look, I was just like you, and now I'm thinking this way. Because immediately what that does is it lowers down that, that initial defense. And so those people who you go, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're part of my tribe. And now you're saying this. So, so there's that aspect of change that I think is really vital in order to get people to, to realize, as you eloquently said, this is the real world. This isn't this make-believe world that I want to live in. But this is the real world. And these are the, the consequences of, of what's going on and what we need to do in order to combat those things. Mm-hmm. So. And I really like what you said about, you know, that localized, quote unquote, influencer. And, and for whatever reason, as you said that, I, I'm not sure why pediatricians popped in my head. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, but, you know, the academy can release recommendations and, and people, you know, will buy in to some extent to the experts. You know. At the same time, if you have two children that are, you know, five and ten, you're going to trust your pediatrician when they know you, they know where you live, they know your children, they know their histories, they know what school they go to, they know what's happening with other kids in the community. And so 
for a lot of people, okay, it's, it's wonderful that, you know, a collective group of smart people said, here's what we should do, you know, X, Y, Z. But what your pediatrician tells you, it, it carries so much more weight. That trust is there. Trust is hard to build. And, and so people are going to look to that localized group of trusted voices. Well, in some ways, it almost sounds a little bit like uh, there's a little bit of, of peer permission going on that when we have a reference group that says it's okay to feel this way, we've got a little bit of permission going on there as opposed, it's back to the honey thing, right? Coming kind of full circle in this. That was very well done. I'm really, <laughs> <laughs> that was very well done. Even, even uh, world this, it's that. not your first day. It's not your first day. But I think you're right. And actually, that is a remarkable way to, to bring it back. It, it tells people, yes, you might have taken a stance. Yes, you might have thought this. But you now see someone else learning. Um, I think it'll be very, I'll use the word interesting, because I'm not sure uh, exactly what word to put there. But I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens now that the president has worn a mask and said that we should. Uh, you know, some people would argue it should have happened months ago, but uh, we have seen you know, that to me is the biggest sort of shift for a group, you know, a whole cohort of people that said you know, it wasn't masculine, um, they didn't believe the science, and you know, he did a complete about face and now says there's science to support this, I'm really interested to see what impact that will have. Is it too late? Have too many people planted their flag and refused to budge? Or is that exactly the permission they needed to move down that gradient? How much, I don't know, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested as well. How, how anchored in are people in this belief that was preset before and now that shift? Can they, as you said, plant their flag? Can they can they lift that flag up and move it over to the next spot? Because I'm not sure. It, it'll be interesting to to see over the next month, two months, what happens with with some of that. It will be, and and I think in that same time frame, uh, there's going to be a lot of moving parts. Right, we're seeing numbers in in places like Brazil and Argentina that are very troubling. It's their winter. Mm. It's hot as hell right now <laughs> here in the state. Yeah, yeah. But we've only got a couple months left of this, right? We're going to enjoy our summer. We're going to be out doing whatever it is we choose to do. But then we're going to start going into fall and into winter. And whatever's happening down there, just like the flu, every you know, there's a decent likelihood it's going to move right back up here. So I think in that same window of time, we're also going to see kids going back to school. We're going to see more people heading back to work. We're, there's a lot of, of moving parts in the next couple months, and I think there's so much that's up in the air. Um, we're, we're certainly not out of the woods. No. Kurt, do you have – I, I was going to make a move here. I thought you were going to go to music. You got it. We are so telephone. I, I was thinking this is the time that Tim always brings up music, and I'm – you yep. know, 160-some episodes, and I'm, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to learn. Nicole, this is, these are unprecedented times. My gosh, how many times have we heard that, right? But, we're, but I'm wondering how 
these unprecedented times have impacted your music listening? Do you have a pandemic playlist? Is there, is there a, a, a new approach that you're taking to, to your interaction with music? I'm listening to more music, but I'm also listening to, well, okay, there are two, two pathways here. The first is I'm listening to old music. I don't know what that says. Uh, I tend to go through phases anyway, which I recognize. Um, I grew up, I was born in Louisiana and then grew up in Missouri. So there's a lot of country, like old, like my grandma's country. <laughs> in there but then you know running I, I have all this like super upbeat you know Beyonce type thing and um, I have found myself sort of going back to like old country and I I have absolutely no idea what that says about me but the other path is I have and I apologize to you up front for even saying this on a podcast I just discovered podcasts oh. <laughs> it it's wild there's a whole world out there and it's awesome uh right I, and it's so embarrassing i know some people have been into them for years and i'm even opening some especially the uh, true crime type uh-huh. and you're i'm scrolling back to like 2016 and i'm like where have i been i guess in books i don't know <laughs> but uh i i have been loving um the ability to just spend 30 minutes to 60 minutes and just get lost in a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even went so far as I did a whole, I, there's the true crime. I think everyone kind of loves that stuff. Um, I, did a, I did a stint in cults, but again, I'm fascinated by my, my background in neuroscience. I'm just fascinated in the brain and human behavior and development of people. Um, cult leaders are a really interesting group of oh. people to study. Um, but then there's, uh, this other subset of things I've been listening to that I I think I feel like I should have learned. So I've been doing Greek mythology. (laughs) That's wild. All right. I'm really, I'm actually embarrassed to tell you. I didn't know. I mean, I knew who like Zeus was. That's it. Maybe Hera. So, so what podcast? They they, they make us look so tame. <laughs> so what podcast is about Greek mythology? We, we need to do a, a shout out for our listeners in case I, I might actually be interested in listening to some Greek mythology. There, if, if, you're, if you're into humor, the one I would recommend is called Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Uh, it's misunderstood. It's a guy and a girl and they there's a whole second sort of maybe season in which they get into... Um, Thor and Loki and all the Norse mythology. I have not gotten on board with that as much, but the first probably 30 whatever episodes are Greek mythology. And it's this guy who knows this forwards, backwards. He travels a lot with his family and his best friend, who's a comedian in, I think LA. And she has no, she can't pronounce any of the words. It's, and he'll say, you know, and it's just, like how some of the gods are made, um, I didn't know. And yeah. she'll be like, time out. So what you're really saying, and it, I had no idea how vulgar and violent 
and hearing someone just not know anything, it's like she asks all the questions you want to ask. And she calls like bullshit like, all the time. <laughs> you want to go, wait, wait, wait. This is not how it works. Um, it, for me, it's been a very nice balance of laughing a lot. And I remember it because it's relatable. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, um, and it actually got me to buy multiple. Uh, I went to a, a really great bookstore in D.C., um, second story, and I ended up buying a ton of old editions of Greek mythology and started reading it. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's I'm amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, like podcasts, because to to that degree, there's so many different worlds out there, from you said true crime to Greek mythology to uh, you know revisionist history to you know um, mm -hmm. all those those things that you can just you can lose yourself in, uh, and I think they're really wonderful. And and to that degree, some are more humorous, some are more serious, but you find the ones that you like and you can, you can learn a lot in your half hour run commute, you know, getting ready for bed routine, whatever that would be. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It has been, um, it, it, it's been a really fun listening experience. And as you just said, you know, I, I often take books with me play. I still love books, but it's so easy to pop in an AirPod. Yeah. And go do whatever it is you're already doing and you're laughing along the way. And, and if you miss something, you realize you've spaced out, you can just hit back a little bit, yep. hear it again. You can save it. You, I really, I mean, I feel silly. Welcome to 2020. Uh, podcast <laughs> or a thing. And I like them. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. Nicole, Welcome to 2020 <laughs> and all the wonderful technology. Can I go back? Yeah, well, welcome to 2015. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, welcome to 2020. I want to be in 2020. Yeah, 2015. I actually just bought a t-shirt. It says 2020. It has one star on it and it says like, very bad, do not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it and it was, you know, one of those silly like Etsy, like $15 t-shirts. And it's like the only thing I've purchased lately, but I laugh so hard. I was like, I will like, I feel as though I can be 80 years old. And if I wear a t-shirt, this is 2020. Do not recommend. Like people will just get it. Like, yeah, people no, will understand. Year. Yeah. <laughs> we, we do not recommend that one. Yep. Generations of people living today will for a long time have memories of 2020. Very strong ones, and to that degree, they would not recommend it either. So there you go. One star. I would give it zero if I could. <laughs> so thank you so much, Nicole, for your time. It's really been a pleasure having you as a guest today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on all podcasts. I love yours. It also is funny, and you learn. And there's nothing really. There's nothing more fascinating than people. And so That's... to have a space where you talk to people about people is it's it's brilliant it's clever and yet it's like so simple because no. we are we're goofy <laughs> <laughs> well tim is um definitely goofy i i'm a little bit goofy but yes no people in general we're goofy we are goofy i love that so nicole thank you thank you
Hey Groovers, welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Nicole, have a free flowing discussion and talk about whatever else comes into our public health informed brains. How about that, Tim? <laughs> that was beautifully done. <laughs> no, the public health informed health brains. What about that? Not not how good I can read words on a page. <laughs> <laughs> Both are good. How about that? Both are Oh, good. okay. All right. We'll go with that. Because I'm not going to dish because you did a fabulous job of reading, but you also teed up public health informed brains, which is so, so deeply underappreciated right now. Like the, what we're going through right now with a pandemic, it's a public health problem. Period. Yes. It's a, it's a public health problem, and yet it has become a politicized thing. It's become this big political football that just seems ridiculous in, in, in some ways, the way that we politicize it. I'm sorry. I'm just ranting. <laughs> Which is what we, we do in, in these grooming sessions. We, we rant on, based on, on the things that we, we talked about, right? So Nicole brought up this idea of that really it is a public health issue, and for whatever reason, Within the U.S., it's become this highly divisive political aspect, just like you said, political football back and forth. And we tend to think about this, I think, as, as this way of which team am I on, right? As opposed to saying, we're all on the same damn team, and this is the same damn team, not just in the U.S. We are on the same damn team in the entire world right. because it's a pandemic. And our and and if we're thinking about who's the opposite team, it's the it's COVID nineteen and the coronavirus. It is not Republicans and Democrats. It is not the U.S. versus China or Europe or whoever it would be. It is humans versus a virus. Yeah. All right. It's that simple. It is really that simple. It's humans versus the virus. I, that's that's great. Maybe that should be the title for our episode. <laughs> well, we're, there we go. Well, let, let me say, can we can we start talking a little bit about her her beautiful description about needing grace and understanding versus more judgment? Oh yeah. So so this whole idea of uh, Americans are really good at escalating issues, and we live in this time, right? Which is we've got Twitter, we've got access to so much more content so much faster we can get our opinions out there in lightning speed and it's to a much broader audience than we used to in the past right our own opinions now get magnified because we have this uh technology in front of us that allows us to go and pontificate and it's not just to the three people that are walking by as we're standing on our soapbox but it could be to tens or hundreds or thousands of people who are connected to us via social media. And it doesn't help when we're watching, as, as she said, I love this, watching science happen in real time. Oh, love that. It was the piece that I just, I, I, I just got goosebumps when, when she said that, because I think it's, it's, I think the general population, and again, I might be just misconstrued on this, this is just me talking about my own personal beliefs, is that I, I don't really think that the public, general public, understands how science really works, at least not at that core level. And this, this idea that science 
finds the answers and the answers are solid and that's just how it is. And that's not science. Science is this continual exploration. It is this, con this skepticism about even the things that we really think are true and believe. We want to make sure that we fully understand all of the components of when is this really true? Is this true in all situations, all contexts in, in, in these different things? And the science around this virus has been very fascinating to watch because you see it happening. You see, again, it was brand new. It's called the novel coronavirus for a reason. It's novel. It's new. <laughs> and, and understanding it, we, we, we look at, you know, our past history and we look back at the last situation that can, has any parallel, and yet it's not like that. So we draw inferences there, then we test those hypotheses, and we get some results. But then on further analysis and, and you know, broader scale, that changes and shifts. And so the messaging around this has to change and shift, which for people who think of science as this, you know, nope, it's one right answer, or this is how it is, then you lose trust, right? You lose that trust in the science. And that's actually, for me, it's saying, oh, we need to trust the science more because they're actually getting to the right answer. But it's messy. You know, the trouble is that when I don't know would actually be a really great answer. That is not what we, what the masses like to hear, nor is it the, the kinds of things that politicians want to say. Yeah. Politician doesn't. None of them want to want to stand up and say, "I don't know." That is that's not a, a position of power. They want to be the "I know." This is what you do. This is how to do it, and and just be very directive. And we as citizens, we want to hear that. It, it's much easier to respond to just do this than we're going to have to figure this out as we go. Well, we're, we we crave certainty, right? Yeah. Uh, this ambiguity, this unknown is, is troubling for us, yeah. which, which lends itself then into confirmation bias, right? This idea that confirmation bias thrives in these am ambiguous situations. And I am going to, you know, this is new and, and, and different things. So I'm going to believe the information that is out there that confirms some pre-held beliefs that I have. That way I don't have to think about it as hard and it's easier. And there's not this contra, you know, because we do have information coming at us very quickly uh, that may be disparate, that might be contradictory in some instances. And to go in and uh, really explore and to, to test all of the opinions and the, the messaging that are out there is just exhausting. It is. So. It is exhausting. It it also uh, it, I want to pull it back to the sort of the grace and understanding part, and it and this may be a little off. Uh, certainly not traditional to what we talk about. You are you are you know welcome to your off days, man. You know. <laughs> well, so I had all these years of Catholic education, and the prayer of Saint Francis rings in my head about trying not to focus so much on being understood, but to rather focus on being on understanding. And mm. I feel like we're not doing that. We're not, <laughs> this is a really good time for all of us to do that. And I, I don't, I don't mean all of us as a code word for people that don't agree with me. I actually mean all of us, <laughs> you know, that we <laughs> a better job of really trying to understand where people are coming from. So you mean I have to do this too? 
I, I, it's not the code word for those others that are out there. I, I have to try to understand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that you could, <sighs> I could, I could absolutely take more time and invest more in trying to understand where other people are coming from. That's, that's- it, it. Yeah. I, and again, I think about this whole COVID thing and we've talked to a lot of people about this um, and, and Brad Shuck keep, keeps coming up in, in my mind when we think about this and particularly as we talk about grace, because he brings up this grace thing and he's talking about it from this work perspective that we need to have more grace with the people that we're working with um, and, and understand that, Hey, they're, they're, we don't know fully what is going on in their life. And so to expect them to show up to work the same way that they did prior to this pandemic is a little foolhardy. It's a little bit of a, this idea of putting winders on and just la, 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 the ostrich. What is the ostrich effect, right? Put your head in the, in the sand and just hope things go away, right? And that's not the case. And when, to have this grace, this idea that, um, you know, we we need to offer people a little bit of forgiveness and a little bit of leeway in in how they're responding. And to your point, trying to understand them, even to that degree, at, at not just that surface level, but understand what's really going on with them, I think is really key in this time. Yeah. So, so. What else, Kurt? What, um, what else? Peer pressure which we've all known about ever since, you know, junior high and high school, right? We've known about peer pressure, but have we heard about peer permission? You know, I love this concept. And and granted, Nicole said she stole it, but you know, this idea of peer permission, I think is really interesting to explore, right? This, you know, pressure is that the, the idea that we bend to a social norm, um, and, and permission is is saying it's okay to question those social norms, which, by the way, you 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 kind of outlined, which I, I appreciate. You, you're the one who, who brought that up, but I'm taking it because it's awesome. It works because it because it totally works, right? So I mean, we we have this opportunity now to really think about the world differently with peer permission to say I am elevated in the in the position that I have to actually feel like oh I can do something about this and I I love that empowering nature to it um, and found something that gosh you know if if we could actually if white people's reference networks were actually to give them permission to dig into racism like that would be really cool that would be a really great thing to just feel like oh I have permission to do this rather than pressure. I, I think that that's a fabulous thing. It's a, what does she call it? The honey versus the shame thing. Yeah. Yeah. I love, you know, and again, uh, you know, I think it was Brad Chuck again, who talked about, you know, you, you track more with honey than you do, you know, um, whatever the, uh, that statement is. I don't remember, but yes, I think there are some really interesting pieces of a permission piece where we are, it, it's, it's permissible to question our beliefs which is, is hard. And, and, and if we have the reference network that says it's okay, that we can question our group's long-held beliefs, or maybe not even beliefs, this, this maybe lack of beliefs that we have, this lack of actual inquiry into the world of what it's really like to be a Black person in the United States. And we just gloss over those things because we 
we, we look at our own experience and say, well, their experience must be similar. And that's not necessarily the case. And we have permission to explore those things now, which I think is good. I was born into a world where I'm pretty sure that all the doctors and all the nurses were white. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, all, all the doctors that I saw uh, throughout my childhood were, were white. In fact, I had one primary physician who was, you know, a, a, a man, even a white man. So doctors were white men. Everything got reinforced in, in, that, in that world. And so it's hard to break out of that idea and think of that a doctor or a nurse or any, any uh, healthcare provider could be something other than a white man. We're, we're slowly breaking those ideas down, but, but maybe we could have permission to go, I can be free of that. I yeah, could, I could let that go. Yeah, Maybe. wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, how about the psychology of protests? I mean, that was the that was the whole thing that got this whole discussion started, right? It, it was, and then we actually had these great conversations on all this other stuff. What I love, right, is she wrote this in March, and if you read it, and then you. You go, this is like a, a crystal ball into the future of what happened. It was literally pandemics, you know, give rise to the, you know, these feelings and this angst. And then we get confined and then we have to have this, you know, uh, there's a trigger and the world can explode in these protests. And it's like, oh, my gosh, March 25th happened and George Floyd's death happened and yeah. it it played out almost to the T of how she described it. Yeah, uh, th this whole idea that really everything is fluid, like the world is constantly in, in flux, but some things are predictable. And she ended up happen happening to actually do a good job of predicting this is likely to happen. Yeah. She wasn't even trying to make a forecast. She was just- No, it wasn't. This is just saying, look, we, we, nobody has studied the, the stages of pandemic really, right? That when you look at that, there's, there's very little literature out there. And that was, she was surprised by that. She yeah. said, wow, we, we've had pandemics or epidemics, uh, you know, forever. And there really hasn't been a lot of research on the psychology of how people respond to those, which-, which in and of itself is a little bit frightening, right? I mean, we these do happen. They're major things that impact us across the globe, and we don't really understand our responses to them very well. And, and hopefully, one of the outcomes of this uh, pandemic is that we are that we are actually looking at this, and that we are understanding how we respond which can help us move forward when the next one comes. And it's not if the next one comes, it's when the next one comes so that we can respond more appropriately. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's just a matter of time. Uh, the, uh, the one thing uh, in this, this talk about uh, the, the protest that I thought was really interesting was this idea of anonymity. Mm. How police, like, I think we even referred to the, the cops as sort of like this RoboCop kind of, garb, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that they're more uh, armored up and their faces are covered and their bodies are covered. And that creates a, a lack of, it's a dehumanizing thing for the protesters. They don't see individual faces. They don't see cops with, with human body shapes. They see these RoboCop style humans that are all covered up. And, and the cops then actually see people who, guess what? 
are wearing masks and are covered up. And, they're, and the, the, the police are not actually seeing what the protesters look like. They're not really seeing any kind of emotion or anything going on. Well, and you can apply that too about how you feel about yourself, right? So as a, as a police officer, you know, there's part of this that I'm wearing this costume and thus it's not me. I, I'm playing a role and that role and however you interpret that role. Same thing for uh, the protesters, that they have this face covering on, which allows them to uh, do things that they normally wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing. Thus, you have this perfect storm of all these uh, dehumanizing anonymity type aspects that come to play. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not good. It, it's really not a good uh, recipe for keeping things peaceful. It seems to be a, a recipe that amplifies uh, the possibility for riots. You know, and as you just mentioned this, and and I don't remember the exact video clip, but you know, during the the protests and all that time that were going on for those few weeks afterwards, there was one clip that I saw where there was one sheriff who uh, ended up you know, just talking with these protesters who were starting to get, you know, more aggressive and various different things. And he ended up just walking with them. And and when I look, think back of that, he was just dressed in a simple police uniform, full face was out there for everybody. And, and he was a human. He wasn't a robocop. And I think people, Abe, just with his element of saying, Look, let's 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 look at this together. Let's have this conversation. Let's walk. Let's have you know. Let's you can peacefully protest. That's part of your right here. But it came across as you're. He's a human. He's understanding us. He's 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 listening to us. And I think that's a lot of what. I mean, there are obviously protesters who just want to be out there and cause havoc and 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 different things. But I think for most protesters, it's about they want to be hurt. They want to have a voice that this is their way of saying nobody's listening to us and we're tired of it. And this is the way we can get our message across. And so just to have somebody listen. Yeah, that's the whole thing. And uh, that clip is so vivid to me. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. We'll make sure that we link to that in the show notes because that was that was just terrific to, to see that in real time, this very yeah. earnest and very uh, open uh, police officer. That was really cool. Uh, Kurt, anything else that you want to? You know, I I mean, obviously she talked about public health and that social justice is a health concern. And I think that, you know, again, it seems a little bit uh, of a stretch when you first hear it, but I think um, there's, there's, there's truth behind that, right? There is this aspect of, of the, the system systemic kind of injustices that are going on. And we know uh, just from other other research about this, you know, the idea of poverty and what that does for health, what mental, um, yeah. mental health, physical health, a number of different pieces of that. And, and you got to think about all of these other factors that come with, with injustice um, and social, social injustice and, and the, the negative impact those have on people's health outcomes. So yeah, it is. I, I think that's really there. And then the last thing is just I really hopeful, um, really excited to to see this COVID, the no COVID task force. Yeah, with uh, with Chris Graves, yeah, John Barry, all of. I mean, you look at the group of people that are aligned around that. Wow, wow, 
<laughs> I mean, it's some heavy hitters, some really bright people. And so I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and hoping that from that, there's some real actionable um, pieces going back to our intro, right? What is changing? And I'm hoping, and, and again, this is on COVID, uh, which is different than the protests and the, the Black Lives Matter and, and social justice piece. But I think they're all combined. And I think there's this aspect that we we make uh, progress on one, it'll help in progress on the other. So, yeah, agreed, agreed. Let's um, just want to tee up. Uh, stay tuned for a bonus track coming up in just a second. Cool. Hey, Groovers, this is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. First, our conversation with Nicole focused on the increased need for grace and understanding. Rather than trying to convince someone of believing in something that doesn't conform to their pre-existing values, she asks us to extend some curiosity to better understand their position. It reminded us of the peace prayer of St. Francis and the need to think and act as if we were not the center of everything in the universe. Of course, we also spoke about the way the pandemic is first and foremost a public health issue. It is ravaging people around the world, and it doesn't help to politicize it. She also took the opportunity to remind us of the many ways that public health is intertwined with social justice issues. She brought up how public transportation and the availability of a good grocery store in the neighborhood are as much about social justice as they are about public health. While we talked only a little bit about it, Nicole introduced us to the idea of peer permission rather than peer pressure. She heard it on an NPR podcast called Code Switch, and Nicole really connected with it. We wonder if now might be the time when people in power feel like they have permission to make changes to systems that have imposed extra burdens on people of color. Okay, here's your groove idea for the week. Now, I'm going back to my education in Catholic schools, and there were several of them, and I want to remind you of a few lines from the Peace Prayer of St. Francis. It goes in part like this. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. So the theme of the prayer is that we should focus more on understanding each other rather than trying to make sure that we are understood. So this week, we'd like to ask you to connect with someone you might not see eye to eye with and focus on understanding them rather than trying to get them to understand you, to console them in their challenges rather than to have them console your wounds. See how it feels and let us know what you think. That wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves and we hope you've enjoyed our discussion with Nicole. And if you did, please don't hesitate to leave us a good review. We would greatly appreciate it. Go out, have a good week and keep on grooving.